Why, hello. <laughs> How are you getting on? Very well, I hope. The weather has been lovely around here the last few days, and I'm hoping that's been the same for you, wherever you are. It seems things are getting a bit better out there, and the world's slowly turning again. Hopefully you've been able to reconnect with your loved ones, and the ones that mean the most to you. So today, uh, it's been a bit longer than I'd care to admit, but this is finally another one of the more special episodes. The big cat episode I promised, the big cats in the Scottish countryside, that one's gone into a box. <laughs> you know, know your limits. I am not ready to tackle a subject with such... Uh, like, openness? Like... Well, the, the pieces were there, but I just couldn't put them together. And I'll admit that, you know. One day. But I'm not ready right now. Not good enough. So this one, this is, uh, yeah, this is a special episode. The type that appeals to the more grisly or ghoulish side of things. The unexplained and the macabre. <laughs> I think most folks have that wee part of them that they like to tickle with this sort of stuff every once in a while. You know, like, maybe when you were wee you would hide your face from a horror film. Or, uh, you know, just have a wee look. Or driving past a car accident. And not being able not to have a wee glance. Even if what you're expecting to see. Or maybe if you'll admit to yourself what you're wanting to see is going to be something scary. It's just part of us. It might be from the old times, from when we were just one step above the animals. Maybe we still are. But then again, maybe we're not. So... This is one of those episodes that's for the people who turn to look when they hear sirens. The people who stop and read a newspaper headline when it describes something violent or shocking. Are you one of those people? If you're not, this is me not passing any judgement. To be honest, it probably means you're a better person than I am. Now, this is a chance to turn this off and go and do something nice. Go and do something whatever you like. I won't be upset. This episode contains a murder, an investigation, paranoia. It makes you question how much you can trust the police. Can you? It's got mystery, it's got thrills and chills. And you know what? It's all true. Now that type of stuff is right up my street, but it might not be up yours. And with that, I'll get on with the show. So why don't you go ahead and make a cup of tea, or sit down with a glass of wine. Go ahead and smoke that joint that you've been saving, whatever you like to do. Maybe lock the car doors if you're driving along at the moment, or have a quick glance over your shoulder if you're out walking alone. But we're going to turn down these lights just a little bit and close the curtains. Okay, you're still here. So now I'm going to tell you a story. Orkney. Well, I've never been. <laughs> it's a great start. All right, set the scene. I've never actually been there. From what I understand, it's a beautiful place. Uh, luckily, everyone I've ever met from there 
I've been truly fond of. From what I've been led to believe, the people it produces are lovely. But when I think about it really, that's the people that have left. Maybe the ones who stay are arseholes. Maybe the ones who stay are a different case. But no. I mean, I've got an auntie from Orkney. Yeah, I love her to bits. She's lovely, a uh, wonderful lady. Uh, there was a boy in my college course. Great guy. A former co-worker from my last job. And she's a she's a delight. You know, lights up a room. One of the managers there too. Type of person you could be yourself around completely and relax. You know, be completely at ease. Lovely as well. And of course, one of my best friends. He's over here on the... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> mainland, Scotland. He comes from up there. Over there. Up there. He's actually a sailor. So I think the viking in his blood i think that still answers to the call of the sea <laughs> my point here is in my experience orcadians are great folk and if the island has folks in it that are half as decent as the folks i know from there then it must be a great place and just to explain this next part because i did my high schooling in the latter half of the 2000s or the noughties, as it was known. A horrendous term for that. Wikipedia was very much my go-to for information. So, um... Encyclopedias? Nah, mate. Google what you want to know about, and trust that whoever updated the Wikipedia was on the right path. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to be on there for too long. It's uh, I'm just going to give you a very quick, little condensed spiel of the top part of Orkney's Wikipedia. Right, so Orkney, also known as the Orkney Islands, I've always just known it as Orkney, is an archipelago. Uh, that means they're like a cluster of islands near to each other, like the Canary Islands and the Bahamas, a collective. In the Northern Isles of Scotland, situated off the north coast of the island of Great Britain, Orkney is 10 miles north of the coast of Caithness. Uh, so that's right up at the top, that's where the A9 comes to an end. Remember the Rennie McRae episode? <laughs> Plugging myself here. Uh, right now, I'm back to it. North of the coast of Caithness. And has about 70 islands. What? Of which 20 are inhabited. I, I had no idea about that. I didn't know there were so many. The largest settlement is Kirkwall. That's where groundskeeper Willie comes from, if you're a fan of The Simpsons. I'll just skip ahead. The islands have been inhabited for at least 8,500 years originally occupied by Mesolithic and Neolithic tribes, and then by the Picts. Yeah, you might have actually seen photos of Scarabray when you were in school. Uh, that's like a primitive man settlement. It was, it was incredibly preserved when they found it. If I remember correctly, it was uncovered when a storm tore up the ground one night, and they found it underneath. But uh, anyway, reading on. Orkney was colonised and later annexed by Norway in the year 1875 and settled by the Norse. That's the Viking side to it. And then in 1492, the Scottish Parliament absorbed the earldom into the Kingdom of Scotland. And they've been with us ever since. And I mean, <laughs> there's loads more to it. As, uh, Orkney has an incredibly rich history. Um, not just the folklore that comes from the area, but the actual history itself too, you know. World War Two, for example, uh, you've got the Churchill Barriers, uh, the prisoners of war that were up there. The impact they made. Uh, I, I, I can't do the place justice. 
Well, I mean, the yeah, I mean, to be honest, the subject matter of this episode certainly isn't going to do it justice, but I'm just trying to paint a wee picture here. So, the ground up there, it's well known for its fertility, the farming on it, uh, lots of agriculture, but I was reading a forum online recently, and it wasn't actually related to this, but somebody had posted about wanting to run away to Orkney, and the the writer, the author, whoever, they'd assumed it was some kind of desolate, empty, vast space, uh, but no, no, it's a place where people go to bed at night, they get up in the morning, you know, they go to work, they shop, they go to the pub, they drive cars, you know, teenagers up there, they fall in love, marriages can fall apart, dogs chase cats, they watch the same TV and read the same books as everywhere else. It's not some wicker man type backward place. Yes, they have an accent and dialect, but in Scotland you, you travel 15 miles in any direction and you're going to get a slightly different accent and dialect. So I hope I'm painting a decent picture here, or as good as one can paint considering that I've never been. You've got an island, decent beaches, working people, scenic lands. And uh, for real, the landscapes are made to be phenomenal. And the largest landowner on Orkney is the RSPB. That stands for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Uh, they make sure the lands are kept suitable for the poor wee birds. It's a well-maintained place and popular with tourists. So here's a fun fact for you. You never know, this might help you in a pub quiz. But Orkney is Scotland's busiest cruise ship port. Around 70 ships a year. It's a busy place. And of course there's the police presence and there's the fire brigade and the ambulance service and of course the coast guard. Because these services are always necessary. So I imagine you're wondering why I'm advertising Orkney as the ideal destination. Well as a matter of fact this episode is brought to you today by Visit Scotland. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Um, I told you at the start that this story contained a murder and a mystery. So I better get into that. Okay, bear with me. Uh, right. Here's a little additional true crime from Orkney. On the evening of March 14th, 1969, the body of a disabled elderly man was found dead. He had been shot. His name was Andrew Kennedy. Police quickly determined that the killer was indeed the victim's neighbour, one Mr Alexander Walter Bruce. Alexander had been using a shotgun earlier that day that had belonged to Mr. Kennedy. The police were sure of this, so they quickly went and arrested Alexander, who was only 18 years old. They then took him to Kirkwall, and, very poor police work here, they questioned him, without a legal guardian present, nor a legal representative. In 1969 in Scotland, if you were under 21, you were illegally viewed as a minor, so to arrest and question this kid under... What is not the proper process did the police no favours. Still, they, they loaded them onto a plane and sent him to Aberdeen. And... <laughs> do you know who he shared the plane with? It's kind of weird. The body of Andrew Kennedy was boarded onto the wee plane as well because it also had to go to Aberdeen for the proper processing. The incompetence surrounding the whole thing was not ignored by the powers at be, and despite what you hear today about how different things were back then, procedure was still procedure, and standards had to be maintained. Alexander Walter Bruce, whether or not he was the killer of Mr Andrew Kennedy, was let off. And then Orkney was without a murder for many years. That was until the early evening of June the 2nd, 1994. Diners ate in the Indian restaurant Mumuta's on Bridge Street in the town of Kirkwall. 
At 7.15, the door opened. A man wearing a black balaclava entered. The man walked through the restaurant. He passed other diners and a waitress as he made his way to the table occupied by a local businessman, Donald Glue, and his family. However, it did not appear that anyone in Mr. Glue's party was this unknown assailant's target. The table was being served by the restaurant manager, 26-year-old Shamsuddin Mahmood. The masked man raised a pistol. He fired one shot that passed through Mr. Mahmood's head, spraying some of the witnesses with blood and brains. The bullet lodged in the wall near one of the restaurant customers. Mahmood collapsed where he had been standing just moments before. The gunman turned to run away. Nobody had been expecting it. Nobody knew why Mahmood had been selected as a victim. And nobody knew who had done it. As I mentioned, the victim of the crime was 26-year-old Shamsuddin Mahmood. He was a Bangladeshi. I'm going to read a passage directly from a book I was using as a source for this episode. It's a wonderful book, written by a retired lawyer called Jean McLean. It's called Blood in the Glens, True Crime from the Scottish Highlands. If you're of a similar mindset to my own, I can only recommend it. It's a great book and I've read through it a couple of times. So the passage about the victim reads as follows. 26-year-old Shamal was popular in the islands. People describe him as likeable and friendly. He seemed to have no enemies. He was the youngest of a family of seven and an economics graduate whose family had aspirations for him that he should become a lawyer like one of his brothers. He had a girlfriend in Bangladesh who was studying to become a doctor and he was expected to marry her. The dead man had his own idea that didn't match up with those of his family and, for the moment at least, he was happy working in restaurants. Uh, You might be wondering why I'm telling you about that if it has nothing to actually do with the situation concerning a gunman on the loose. But let's just take a moment to remember that this was a real guy with thoughts and feelings. You know, there are people out there who still miss him to this day. His photos will still be up in houses somewhere. I'm not not getting soppy in here. Maybe it's just to remind me more than anyone else. But this wasn't just some BBC Scotland crime drama. I mean, it could be. I'm surprised it's not. I do remember seeing a reenactment type thing of it on TV when I was younger. But my point is that I feel it's too easy to completely disconnect from the reality of it. It's a tough world out there. <laughs> Lots of bad things happening a lot. But if it makes life easier, take comfort in knowing that a lot of good things are happening too. They just don't get reported or hyped up as much as the bad stuff. Right, back to the subject at hand. Uh, what happened next? Uh, well, what do we have so far? Quiet island community, well-liked young guy shot down dead in his workplace by an unknown killer. Well, from what I understand, this caused a bit of a stir, to say the least. Orkney at the time was policed by a team of 36, and the highest-ranking officer was a sergeant. In the hierarchy of police rankings in Scotland, you've got the constables, that's the entry level. You know, the foot soldiers. They're the ones who are responding to emergencies, going out and about, the, the, the ones getting the abuse from drunk folk. Then the next step up, you get the sergeants. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that they all just have desk jobs, because they also do go out and about and things. But they are in charge of constables. Then above them, above the sergeants, you get the inspectors, then chief inspectors, then superintendent, and uh, the chevrons on their shoulders get fancier. And, you know, proud of that. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to have a grasp on what responsibilities they have. Uh, I just imagine the person at the very top gets a map with all the crimes pinned on it and they get told, okay, fix it. 
and then the responsibilities get divided to the lower ranked folks and from what seems to be the case the budget keeps getting tighter and then they cut staff and put more stress on the ones that remain now let's not make this political guys okay So after this poor man got shot, the 36 officers sprang into action and it was soon realised that they were there to police the island over three different shifts during what would be considered normal times. However, waiters getting shot in the face escalates things from normal times to fuck times. And I should say guys, this was before Police Scotland was a thing. And if you've listened to my episode about the disappearance of Rini and Andrew McRae, you'll have heard, if I do so myself, good episode, you'll have heard about how before Police Scotland was running the show, each area had its own division. And as I mentioned at the start, Orkney is up by the north. So it was policed by Northern Constabulary. So Northern Constabulary, they sent officers from Inverness up immediately. Detective Superintendent George Goh was among them. And I was watching the Crime Watch segment on this from back when it happened. And Detective Superintendent Go, uh, Go, sorry, was talking about how, realistically, a helicopter would have been the most appropriate method for him to get up there. Because, you know, you've, you've seen TV and films. Preserve the crime scene, get a method of investigation on the go. Basically, the faster you're on the scene, the faster the ball is rolling. And I'm guessing that means your you know, chances of getting the killer are higher. So, yeah, realistically, a helicopter would have been ideal. But because this is the real life, that wasn't the case, of course. So he had to drive north over 100 miles with the other police officers and go over on the unscheduled ferry that had been set up for them. They got over there and they got to work. Every house in Kirkwall had his door knocked. Statements, thousands of statements were taken. Anyone leaving the island by boat or plane, they were stopped and questioned, and people who had left before the heavy investigating got underway, they, they were chased up. Now, I'm not saying they were out of their depth uh, at all, but the police simply needed more manpower up there. So 20 additional Northern Constabulary officers had to go over, and more would have gone, but, as I mentioned, the island is a very popular tourist destination, and there was nowhere to have the officers stay. They had maximum capacity themselves. Two days into the investigation, uh, a teenager came forward with her mother to offer some information. They had witnessed three weeks previous, on the 19th of May, from their house, which overlooked woods, Papdale Woods, they had witnessed a young man wearing a black balaclava who was kicking around for around an hour doing commando-type exercises, going from tree to tree and stuff, as if stalking something. They had watched him, probably out of amusement but also slight concern, for the whole hour, at the end of which he stopped and removed a few layers of clothing, which he put into a backpack, and then left. He also removed his balaclava, but they didn't recognise him. Another lady came forward to tell that she had received a very unsettling phone call days before the murder, and it's worth noting that her phone number was almost identical to the restaurant's. The caller had said, This is it. Your life is at an end. But the callers turned out to be a couple of young boys messing about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I bet they learned a lesson there. What complicated things, un like understandably, was that due to the shock of the whole situation, some of the witnesses in the restaurant all gave different descriptions of the killer. His assumed weight, well, you know, wasn't precise. Nor was his height. And, like, nothing could be agreed on. 
and the balaclava had prevented anyone from seeing his face, obviously. So the police couldn't release an artist's impression of what he would look like. Or an e-fit, I think they're called. Anyway, uh, police hadn't found a murder weapon, you know, because sometimes you find they're tossed into a bin nearby or something like that. Uh, and with no luck, or uh, with... Police hadn't found a murder weapon. Uh, sometimes you find they get thrown into a bin nearby or dropped down a drain or something. And they had no luck with any witnesses seeing someone run from the crime scene, tearing off a balaclava as they ran. So what could they do next? The motive. Why had the killer passed the other diners, another member of staff, and gone directly to Mahmoud? <sighs> motive. Uh, words flew around the islands. Had Mahmoud got involved with the wrong woman? Had gambling got the better of him and maybe caused him to get in too deep with loan sharks? Could be that he got some drugs on tick and his time had run out? Maybe. But maybe we're just acting naive. What? You're going to make me say it? Ah. You say it. Alright, I'll say it. He was a Bangladeshi on Orkney. Nothing wrong with that, but I'm just going to say the man must have stood out like a Bangladeshi on Orkney. What are you talking about? Racism, my friend. Where you find people, you'll find prejudice. Well, I don't look at the world like that. I'm not saying you do, but it's out there, everywhere, over the most pathetic of reasons. You got hair colour, eye colour, skin colour, fat, thin, tall, short, straight, gay, football teams, religious beliefs, the model of a car someone drives the taste of music they have the country they're born in accents dialects sense of humor level of intelligence fucking condition of someone's teeth everything that can make a person unique anything that makes someone stand out from the crowd just that little bit what makes them them is opening the door to judgment and prejudice and it exists everywhere everywhere it's not going to go away overnight the best way, the best way I believe anyway, so I've read, <laughs> is to challenge it. Not aggressively, you know, don't start throwing fists, but question it. And recognise when you do it, because you will, without even meaning to. Uh, but seriously, don't vote Tory. So, could the motive for this gentleman's murder have been racism? Okay. Well, let's discuss. Yes. No. <laughs> okay. I'll explain why I believe this to be the case. Now, the only actual link between the victim and racism directly is what two Austrian tourists told the police during the initial inquiry. They claimed they had visited the island the year before and met the victim then. Then they had returned again the next year, so that was the year of the murder in 1994, and had gone to the Indian restaurant where they'd seen Mahmoud again. Who remember, he was reportedly a friendly guy they had been in uh, the two Austrian tourists they'd been in dining and were conversing with him when two men had tried to enter the restaurant uh, Mahmoud remembering he was the manager had denied them entry and was met with racial abuse and was finally threatened by one of them that well the, the, the guy said to him but I'm going to shoot you so right 
The Austrians claimed that Mahmoud was seemingly saddened by the encounter, which I think seems pretty understandable. And on top of that, the owner of the restaurant, the scene of the crime, he believed it was a racially motivated attack, and he had actually requested that his children were not allowed to go outside at school during the lunch times, and he moved his family into a safe house. Or what he claimed to be a safe house. He even claimed that his son was threatened on the way home from school. Uh... They certainly were not the only Asians in the area, though. Um, remember, it was 1994, which is almost 30 years ago, so it was a little bit different back then. Whereas now, you're more likely to find that the immigrant population are from countries in the European Union, where they, where they were, it's going to come to a grinding halt. In 1994, North Scotland and Orkney had a little immigrant community from Asia. And you're probably thinking right now, okay, fair enough, but that's not enough to base the belief the murder was racially motivated. To which I would say, yes, you're absolutely right. But within three weeks of Mahmoud's murder, two men from Orkney appeared in court for threatening to shoot an Asian taxi driver on the island. The female taxi driver was sitting in her car when Stephen James Fobister and Ian Anson approached. One of them was muttering about a balaclava and the other exposed himself. Yeah, they admitted in court that the colour of the taxi driver's skin was their motivation for what they did. To which they got 200 hours of community service and had to pay £400 compensation to the lady. To add to this too, at the end of June, telephone boxes... You might have to Google what they are, kid. Telephone boxes were discovered on the island containing information uh, about... Uh, like leaflets. Uh, about... The BNP, the British National Party. Now, the British National Party, the BNP, I remember when I was in high school, they were in the news a lot. Which was odd, because before that no one was talking about them. Um, I think if the news hadn't been talking about them so much, then people would have stopped talking about them anyway. And if you don't know who they are, then that's a good start, really. Uh, BNP, bloody nasty people. Far-right fascists, very far-right. They believe Britain should be a white-only country. Um, I just sort of close my head attitude, you know, like... They also... No gay people, no immigration, sever ties with any foreign country. Just morons, honestly, out-of-date morons. They cling to this idealised version of a vision that they have of a world that they never lived in. But you just, not five minutes ago, you are talking about allowing people to be individual, not to judge. Yeah, I did say that. But if, if you look up members of the BNP, you'll hopefully be surprised at just how awful some of these folks are. You know, there's charges for terrorism, racially motivated attacks, sex crimes, sex crimes against kids, and just all over dickish behaviour. The type of behaviour that if somebody of colour does, they jump on it but really it's oh, it's not nice folk they're the types of folks who think the Royal Navy should be shooting asylum seekers boats, you know when they enter the UK waters, those types of folk so that's what was going on in Orkney apparently, possibly a bit of racism simmering possibly a bit of racism simmering beneath the surface now an obvious question would be, did they find the gun? no so if you're from Scotland and over a certain age, you'll likely remember it. Um, 
If not, if you're from the UK, you've almost certainly heard of it, and you know you probably know what I'm going to talk about. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to get into it. It is a truly evil, nasty piece of Scottish recent history. But in 1997, uh, in, in March 1997, an absolute abhorrent mistake of a man entered the Dunblane Primary School, uh, just as this class of, uh, you know, a primary about like four and five year olds, just tiny wee kids. Uh, they were doing PE. I'm not even going to use the man's name, uh, but the, the coward, he, he was in possession of handguns, legal possession, and he is responsible for the deadliest mass shooting of British history. 16 children and one teacher got killed, then 15 other folks got injured. Now you might be wondering, why the hell did I just bring this up? Because after this, handguns got banned. The Labour government got that dealt with. And I'm just going to add in here, guys, that Boris Johnson, that's the current Tory leader and, uh, you know, Prime Minister, he at the time said that the calls for tighter gun controls were a knee-jerk reaction and a case of something-must-be-done-ism. So, essentially, he was against the banning of handguns. Twat. Now, total controversial statement coming up. Three, two, one. Admittedly, I'm kind of into guns. Well, uh, full honesty, like Western guns. Like Winchester rifles and cult peacemakers, because I, I like Westerns, and they're a big part of it. I'm not a gun nut in any way, but uh, when I went on holiday to America, like 15 years ago, which was in Las Vegas, myself and my dad went to a gun range, and I would have been, what, 12 years old? And they just let me shoot a handgun. That crazy. Uh, I wasn't allowed to stop walking in the casinos. Kids are allowed in the casinos, but they have to keep moving. This is honestly, this is true. Because if they stop, then they'll be exposed to gambling. <laughs> but you can leave the casino and drive in a car for fifteen minutes, and then just give a twelve-year-old a gun. So when I say I'm into guns, um, please be assured this is not me making, you know, like an ultra-liberal plea. But I understand the reality of them. And that is that, for the most part, they are not necessary. Guns. Their purpose is to project an item to cause damage. They're not tools for peace by any means. Now, actually, working in Tesco in Inverness, every now and again a policeman would come in to buy stuff. Well, it is a shop. And I'm assuming he worked at the airport because he had a handgun and a holster on his hip. And that wasn't a comfort to see. It, it, it was never like, cool, that cop's got a gun. And it stood out and it, it totally changed the ambience and the environment. It, it wasn't nice to see a gun in public. It wasn't a comfort, is what I mean. But I'm, I'm not saying the police shouldn't have guns because it's such a murky... What am I saying? There's no point to all this. Right, yeah, so the Dunblane massacre, which led to the ban of handguns, was in March 1997. The murder on Orkney was June 1994. So that's, well, that's just uh, just under three years. So when the Orkney murder was committed, handguns weren't illegal. People could legally own them. And I mean, it, it was never like in a Western where folks would go about their daily business spinning a gun on their finger. But yeah, they were owned. For sports reasons, or collecting, or... You know, the purpose. The same reason people today have a rifle or a shotgun. But... Uh, the bullet that had killed Mahmoud, as I mentioned before, it went through his head and went into the wall. 
the bullet casing was ejected from the gun after being fired and it was left there by the gunman and then the, the bullet and the casing were examined by the firearms expert on Orkney um, Mr Constable Eddie Ross it was his job to log any registered weapons on the island and to dispose of any illegal ones most usually by throwing them away into the sea because Orkney's an island Constable Eddie Ross identified the bullet as a 9mm and was able to narrow it down to a type of bullet manufactured in the Kirky Arsenal in India and that sounds like a great progression in the case but the bullets were available in the UK uh, you know but nonetheless the island was searched for anyone owning the same bullet and no luck none turned up but Constable Ross also examined every single registered gun on the island that was able to fire 9mm bullets and he test fired them and examined them all so unfortunately after that things started to dwindle like I said before every home in Kirkwall got a visit that took over a fortnight to achieve every male on the island from the ages of 16 to 50 got questioned and all of the information got processed by a computer system called Holmes you get it? it's like Sherlock Holmes Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, which meant that the officers on Orkney could do work, you know, the footwork, while staff in Inverness, who would work with the information they were putting in. And it was 1994, they couldn't just Facebook message the information across. Police had reports of a sighting around the time of the murder of a male fitting the suspect's description, being near the public toilets near to the restaurant, but he still wasn't identified. Then the restaurant opened 10 days again after the murder, to which apparently the owner had a hard time finding replacement staff, which I get. Can you blame folk for being hesitant about the work there? And despite the potential sighting of the killer walking through a particular part of the island, it seemed things were cooling down with no satisfactory outcome. And Detective Superintendent Gow had to go away. He was required to work in Dundee, so this left Detective Inspector Angus Chisholm in charge of the investigation on the island. And then something odd happened on the morning of August the 12th. It was 8am. Detective Inspector Chisholm had arrived at the police station to begin his day shift. Constable Eddie Ross was leaving. He had just completed a night shift. I don't know how the conversation went, but remember how the bullet was a 9mm from Kirky in India and how the island had been searched for any trace of ownership. Well, the guy in charge of guns on the island, Constable Ross, he just happened to mention to the guy leading the investigation, Inspector Chisholm, uh, something like, you know, Morning. Oh, by the way, I've actually got a box of those 9mm bullets at home. What a world. <laughs> anyway, have a good shift. I'm going to go home and sleep. I'm tired. Well, I mean, that's how I imagine. He tried to nonchalantly pass off the fact that he was in possession of the 9mm bullets. Chisholm didn't just brush it off, and he sent Ross home with a driver to pick them up and bring them back in, which he did. And when he got back, Chisholm asked him, he asked the guy whose job it was to keep track of these things, where'd you get them? I don't know. You don't know? I can't remember. Chisholm let Ross know that this little pissy act of whatever he was playing at wasn't good enough, and that he should go home, have a think, and they'll meet in the same spot at the same time tomorrow, and he can tell him then. So they met the next morning. Morning, Ross. Hi. Yeah, hi. So, do you remember who gave you those bullets? 
Uh, yeah. You do? Yeah. Okay, and who was that? I can't tell you that. You can't tell me that? No. And why can't you tell me that, Ross? Because I don't know... I, I don't think they would want me telling you their name. Have you asked them? No. Okay, well, why don't you go and ask them and then come back and let me know? Okay. Okay? Okay. So, Constable Ross went off and returned a short while later. Hi. Hi, Ross. I'm back. I can see that, Ross. I'm a detective. So, do you have a name for me? No. 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 And why not, Ross? Couldn't find him. You couldn't find him. Alright, okay, I'll believe you. I was just about to go inside there and phone Detective Superintendent Gow and ask him to come back. Now, I know you said you couldn't find him, but forget that. I don't want you to even talk to this guy, okay? You go home now and have a good sleep. Okay, bye. Bye, Ross. And then they met again the next morning at the same spot. Ah, Constable Ross, I hope your night shift went well. How was it? Jim. I beg your pardon? Jim. You call him... Oh, Jim, is that the name of the guy who gave you the bullets? Yeah. Can you tell me anything else about him? He's coming in. I saw him at 6.30. Asked him to come in this afternoon. So you spoke to him then after I told you not to? Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's exactly how the conversation went, but I imagine that they were truly that frustrating for Chisholm. So naturally, they quickly investigated Ross to see if he could have been the killer. Uh, but that was not the case. He had been at home when the murder occurred. He had answered the phone when the station had all hands on deck. You know, he'd come in. The bullets... Ross claimed he'd been given a sealed box of the 9mm bullets and an open box of .22. They had indeed come from a man called Jim. Uh, Jim Spence. He worked as a street cleaner on the island and had been a Royal Marine. The bullets had got into his possession during his discharge process and for whatever reason he had decided it would be in his favour not to hand them into the Navy but rather pocket them and sort it himself, which he did. He'd given them to the police firearms expert, so. It did all check out, but what was smelly about the whole thing was how the firearms expert had forgotten that he had a box of the 9mm bullets when he knew they were searching the whole island top to bottom for anyone having them too, so. Strange. And uh, But then it seemed that things were dwindling down after that. The victim's body was sent from Aberdeen, where it had been examined to Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, for burial. And by the end of the month, the investigation had been scaled down. All the additional officers who'd been sent to help had to return to their postings in various different stations around North Scotland. And that included D.I. Chisholm. And that is where this ends. But then wait, September the 9th, Lynn Railston got in touch with the police again. Lynn who? Lynn! She was the girl who had watched the Balaclava guy acting like a commando in the woods with her mum, remember? 
her and her mother had seen the guy and he'd removed balaclava and stuff. Yeah, you remember. Lynn got in touch with the police and she told them she had seen the guy. Again. But not in the woods. She had seen him in Kirkwall Town Centre shopping about. Well, alright, cool. So the next day Lynn sat in the town centre across from the shop she'd seen the guy in and she sat with Detective Sergeant David Mateer. Maybe the young guy would come back. So they waited. And he did. Lynn pointed him out to the detective. Now, if this was a film, the detective then would have pulled a gun out, yelled at the guy to freeze, the guy would have turned, and there would have been a triumphant shootout. But this isn't a film, is it? No. This is Orkney. The young guy bought his lunch and then left. Detective Sergeant Mateer went into the shop and asked for the CCTV footage. He was given it. Lynn was thanked and she went home. This is police work, people. Forget your car chases and shootouts. The footage was taken to the police station so they could identify the young man, and they did. Are you ready for this, guys? The young man was 15-year-old Michael Ross, Constable Ross's firstborn son. So now, holy shit. That would explain why Constable Ross was reluctant to admit having those bullets. Did he think he could just leave it and it would go away? But then maybe Jim Spence would remember giving those bullets and come forward. But this is an assumption. And assumptions are easy to make. And don't forget, when you assume, you make an ass of you and me. (laughs) Alright, let's be serious. Come on, guys. They had to keep their minds open to other possibilities. And besides, the BBC were coming up to film a reenactment for Crime Watch. Who could tell what else that could bring to the investigation? So they kept their cool. They didn't spring right into it immediately. That's why it took a wee while, and it was September the 24th that Michael was formally interviewed. He was accompanied by his father, and Michael denied that he was the wannabe commando farting around in the woods behind Lynn Rielsen's house. However, he had no alibi for that time. And he did claim, though, that he had an alibi for the time of the murder. If his memory served him correctly, he'd been cycling about and had met two school friends. Hayden Howerson? Howerson? And an Ingrid Watson. He remembered where he was because he'd been on his bike when the sirens of police cars sounded over the area uh, when they were on their way to the crime scene. Which, okay, so that was fine. Only problem... No, it wasn't wasn't fine at all. Hayden Hurston and Ingrid Watson were certain that they had not seen Michael on that night, which I'd be inclined to believe because I imagine most folks would remember that night pretty clearly. And you could probably still ask Arcadians today and they'd be able to recount the evening in pretty certain detail. So I'm going to go with Hayden and Ingrid's version of that. And then for the investigation, once again, it was back to treading water for a while. On the 6th of October, Crime Watch was on TV and it had the reconstruction. And Detective Superintendent Gow appeared on it, appealing to the public for information. Which you might be thinking, that seems a bit redundant because surely everyone in Orkney would have come forward with any information already. But it wouldn't have been necessarily for the folks on Orkney to watch. I mean, of course, <laughs> I'm sure they would have been watching and probably laughing at it. That's where I parked my car. See that, mine? I clipped the car. Or they would comment on the mysterious world of filmmaking. 
you know, they were filming there for two days and all we get is that small of even five minutes clip. But then someone in Liverpool might have watched it and remembered some guy in the pub telling him that he hated waiters and was planning to shoot one on a Scottish island. Because these kinds of things happen, but uh, unfortunately not in this case. I don't think the crime watch segment actually led to any progress. Well, I mean, it, it might have, uh, but I haven't read anything to say otherwise. So it's back to then treading water. Until the 2nd of December 1994, Constable Ross picked up his son Michael from school and took him to the police station for a second interview. Before the official interview began, Michael spoke to detectives without his dad in the room and without the tape recorder. 15 minutes after the pre-interview, his dad joined him and the tape recorder started recording. Michael admitted he was the balaclava wearing commando in the woods that day. But, and here's some school drama from Kirkwall Grammar School almost 30 years ago. Jamie Weatherall and Nicola Wiley had been going out, but they'd split up. And, <laughs> yeah, I know. And rumour was that Jamie had beaten Nicola up, which is not cool, Jamie. And Michael had heard about it. So he was going to scare, I don't know how exactly, he was going to scare Jamie by wearing a balaclava and jumping out of the woods or something. But that had never happened, so he'd, he'd just gone home. Nicola Wiley confirmed that there was indeed drama with Jamie Weatherall and that Michael would have been aware of it. But no word if she asked him to scare him or whatever. Michael was also once again asked about the evening of the murder when he told the same thing. He was out on his bike, he saw Ingrid and Hayden. Ingrid and Hayden, they were also interviewed and same response as last time. They both denied having seen Michael that night. Now, Michael, along with his father, they were members of the gun club on Orkney. And I used to be a member of the local rifle club in my area when I was younger. And it's it's not what you might imagine. <laughs> uh, yes, there's shooting involved, but it's not some gun-crazed club where they all talk about, you know, it's... Just shooting things and guns. It's, it's not like that. And, and honestly, I think if any members show that type of inclination, they, they soon get gently asked not to return. It was a place where you would go, or this is my experience, you'd go, you'd learn how to handle a rifle with respect and care, you know, safely. You'd shoot some targets in a very safe environment. You know, so <laughs> They don't mess about. And then after that, you'd sit and chill for a little while. You just, you just socialise. And it was really, it was a nice place, actually. There was very nice people that went there. My, my point is, though, please don't hear that he was a member of a gun club and assume he was some kind of gun nut. He may well have been. But the only thing he would have learned at the gun club was how to properly handle a weapon. He wouldn't have learned intolerance and hate. It, it, it's not that kind of, you know, when you see... Trump rallies on TV and things. It's not those types of redneck type guns and killing. It's not like that. It's very offensive. In addition to the gun club, Michael was also in the local cadets and they also used guns. So it seemed this kid was well learned with a shooter, right? And now the thought plickens. Police also re interviewed Jim Spence. You remember he was the ex Royal Marine who had given Constable Ross 9mm bullets way back. Well, he told the police that he had actually given Constable Ross an open, half-full box of 9mm bullets, as well as the unopened one. On top of that, he added, since the investigation began, 
Constable Ross had spoken to him three times, trying to convince him that he had only given one box of ammo. This ain't good. Jumping forward a few days, December the 6th, Constable Ross and Michael are back at the police station for further inquiries, during which time the police searched the Ross home. Constable Ross's apparent extensive gun collection all got examined. Nothing matched the murder weapon. All the guns there were legitimately owned. However, Jim Spence's reasoning for giving Constable Ross the ammo was that he was well known to like guns and was a policeman. Therefore, a man of integrity and one that could be trusted. So the theory is, could the gun that had been used to kill Mahmoud have been acquired through similar reasoning? And then Constable Ross just never declared it. Who knows? The search did turn up evidence that Michael Ross was racist. And I'm just going to mention that he had a decommissioned machine gun hanging on as well. To which the mature adult part of me reads that and thinks... Yeah, it's kind of strange. But then if I was 15 years old, yeah, that's cool as hell. Even, I'm going to be honest, even now, if someone offered me a decommissioned machine gun, would I say no? Of course I wouldn't. Something that certainly didn't help the Ross's case was that when Michael's girlfriend was interviewed, she told police in the months after the murder, herself and Michael were walking along the beach one night, and Michael told her he had a gun in his pocket. And I don't just mean that he was happy to see her. And if he did mean that, then you know, this is when it gets weird. Because he also told her that he'd taken it from his dad's collection. So it would appear that he had no problem with accessing his dad's guns. However, due to the frustration of no murder weapon turning up, six months after the murder, Detective Superintendent Gow made the following appeal to the people of Orkney. He said... This gun did not just appear one day. Someone must have had it before then. I return to the belief that the solution lies in Orkney and perhaps even in Kirkwall. Obviously it is more likely the weapon used to commit the murder was not legally accounted for by the person responsible. And, in connection with this line of inquiry, I request that the people of Orkney seriously consider the following questions. Have you, or do you know, Anyone who had, over the past four or five years, a 9mm handgun, which they eventually decided to dispose of. If so, did you destroy it, throw it away, or give it to someone? I would be very interested to know of any disposal of a 9mm handgun in the recent past, particularly if you gave it to someone even someone you consider a reliable and responsible person. <coughs> like a policeman. But that was it for a good while. The police had collected shed loads of information from every man, woman, child and puffin on Orkney. They'd spoken to other Indian restaurants around the UK trying to make sense of it. They'd interviewed people of various Bangladeshi communities. National appeals and they just just a dead end. On Orkney though... What was interesting was how much information they had on sightings of a male acting suspicious by the Kirkwall public toilets around the time frame of the murder. Then in January of 1995, the police had a lineup of suspects. Michael Ross was among them. And you'll have seen these in films too. Uh, it's like uh, the men stand in front of the wall and they've all got numbers in their chest. 
That lady stands behind a two-way mirror. She takes a moment and says, Number three, that's the guy. And the cop's standing beside in the shadow. And You sure? And she goes, Am I sure? I could never forget. The cop gives a solemn nod to the other officers and they go and take number three away. Well, that's in the films. Uh, anyway, but like we established, this wasn't a film. This is real life. The January 1995 Arcadian lineup went something like, I imagine. So can you identify the male you think may have been from any of these men here? Uh, no. All right, well, thanks for coming down. Uh, so no luck there. By the time March of that year came around, though, Constable Eddie Ross had been suspended from his duties because it had come to light that he had been involved with various firearms offences. And then in the summer, Michael Ross turned 16 he left school, to which he then joined the Black Watch, which is part of the army. It's an infantry battalion in the Scottish Regiment. They are well known for their bravery and involvement with many high-profile conflicts. Then that same summer, in August, D.I. Chisholm sent a report to the Crown Office saying that he believed Michael Ross to be the guy. The Edinburgh lawyers didn't agree due to the lack of evidence. Then, leaping forward a few years to May 1997, Eddie Ross appeared in court in Inverness. His actions following the murder had come back to bite him in the ass. Not disclosing that he had the 9mm bullets and his reluctance to assist with questioning. And I'm guessing the betrayal that his colleagues felt from him. Although that wouldn't be something that he was charged with. It came out and it was made public knowledge during the trial that Michael Ross was the prime suspect in the case. And that it was believed his father was part of an effort to cover it up. This may involve hindering and tampering with the investigation. And so it was that on May the 29th, 1997... Former police constable Eddie Ross, despite serving time in the army and completing three or four tours of Northern Ireland, and until the end of his career, an exemplary police record, he found himself sentenced to four years in prison, guilty of deliberately hindering the investigation and attempting to defeat the ends of justice. The judge, Lord McLean, as he imposed the sentence, said to Ross, to attempt to defeat the ends of justice as a police officer by frustrating a murder investigation strikes at the very heart of the criminal justice system. You knew where your duty lay and you willfully failed to carry out that duty. Imagine being a copper and then going to prison. I can't imagine that's a bed of roses. And he served two years out of the four and was let in for his good behaviour. Then he returned to Kirkwall and became an undertaker. And he's still there to this day. Very much involved with the Royal Legion. After the trial, the Sunday Times ran an article uh, writing about how Orkney's racial prejudice led to a wall of silence and how that had played a big part in the police not locking the crime down. But Detective Superintendent Gow shot that down. He claimed Orkney couldn't have been more supportive. Sunday Times talking shit. Trying to stir something up. So now the year is 2001. The Game Boy Advance is released along with the Xbox. Apple announces the iPod. Uh, that guy who won Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Turns out he's cheated. 9-11 happened. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. 
Shrek and the first Lord of the Rings. They all went to the cinemas. And back in Kirkwall, there was another murder. A man named Tommy Miller was beaten to death by a local man. It was by the name Paul Bullen. Bullen pled guilty immediately. Both men had been stinking drunk. And yeah, as far as crimes go, open and shut case. By the way, 2001, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> you feel old? So you're probably wondering by now, where can this go from here? The trailers were on cold. It seems that whoever did the killing had got away with it. Well, in September 2006, 12 years after the murder, the police on Orkney got a letter. And it read as follows. This is a true letter. I promise that I saw the person who killed the Indian waiter. I saw his face in full and the handgun. It was in the toilets at Kiln Corner. I have lived long enough with the guilt of not coming forward. The person was about 15 plus years approx, white, and had a balaclava on head, but still not turned down. Colour was either dark blue or dark black clothing. He came out of cubicle, but went back in quick when he saw me. I looked over and saw his face in full. The handgun was of natural polished metal or silver, and was like a big beretta. This may sound stupid, but the way he held the handgun looked like he had handled a firearm before. I just don't ken what to do. Signed, Worried Sick Witness. The Worried Sick Witness was traced. It was local man William Grant. He confidently identified Michael Ross as the person he'd seen in the toilets. However, on the night of the shooting, Mr William Grant had been drinking heavily. And though that could be used very much against him in court, it was still enough for the Crown Office to let it go to trial. And it did. Michael Ross's trial began on Monday the 12th of May 2008 in courtroom 3 of Glasgow High Court. He was not remanded in custody, so each day he would walk confidently into the courtroom. And there's plenty of photographs from doing it on Google, but I'll save you some time. It's just a guy in a suit walking to a court. Nothing spectacular. Michael Ross was by this point 29 years old, a sergeant in the army and living in army accommodation in Inverness with his wife and two wee kids. He was tried for the following charges. 1. Between 3rd of May and 24th of May 1994, inclusive the exact date and known, at Bridge Street, Kirkwall, outside the Mumuta's Indian Tandoori restaurant, along with other unknown, committed a breach of the peace by uttering racist abuse, threats of violence, shouted, swore and acted in a disorderly manner. 2. On 19th of May 1994, at Papdale Woods, Kirkwall, face masked and head covered, committed a breach of the peace by loitering and crouching behind a wall and trees. 3. On 2nd of June 1994, at the Mumuta's Indian Tandoori restaurant, 7 Bridge Street, with face masked and head covered, shot... Shamsuddin Mahmood in the head and murdered him. 4. On the 2nd of June 1994 at the Kiln Corner Toilets, Junction Road and elsewhere in Kirkwall, having committed the crime in charge 3 and being conscious of his guilt, changed his clothing and footwear worn while committing the crime and disposed of the weapon. This he did to defeat the ends of justice and avoid detection, arrest and prosecution. 
And if you're wondering what exactly Breach of the Peace is, uh, allow me to read directly from the same book as before. Breach of the Peace is defined as behaviour which might cause fear or alarm to any other person. It is one of the most commonest crimes prosecuted in the lower courts in Scotland as it covers a multitude of activities which do not fit the definition of other specific criminal acts. Its flexibility allows the justice system in Scotland to respond to crimes such as stalking before any specific Act of Parliament is enacted. During the trial, the victim's brother travelled over from Bangladesh and spoke of his dead brother. He explained his personality, his hopes for the future, their family's hopes for the future, and expressed that there was no known reason for someone to want the man dead. The victim's co-workers from the restaurant spoke. They confirmed he was a good man, firm but polite with customers, as a manager should be. Uh, all the diners from the evening of the murder, they all gave evidence. Some of the cadets from Michael Ross's time in the island's cadet club gave evidence, especially about his skill with guns. They also mentioned his racist views. He is reported to have said on at least one occasion, blacks should be shot. Michael Ross's girlfriend from the time spoke about the evening on the beach when he had claimed to be in possession of a gun from his father's collection. Hayden Hurston spoke to confirm he had not seen Michael on the evening of the murder, despite what Michael's alibi claimed. Ingrid Watson could not attend. At some point between 1994 and 2008, she had sadly died in a road accident. And she would have been in her late 20s by this time. William Grant, the man who had sent the letter, the sick, worried witness, he spoke about how he had seen Michael in the toilets holding a gun and his testimony was torn apart by the defence, as expected. And Michael's family, they gave evidence. His little brother spoke of the bond between the father and son. The mother was questioned on the materials found in Michael's room during the police search, which it turned out the, he'd had some Nazi drawings and scribbles. The mother dismissed these as just boy stuff. Former constable Eddie Ross spoke and claimed that his own conviction was a miscarriage of justice. He stuck to his guns about the amount of ammo Jim Spence had given him. He denied believing that his son had anything to do with the murder. Michael Ross's army career was used in defence. By all means, a model soldier. Loyal to his troops and not at all prejudiced towards Fijian soldiers he had served with. With regards to any sociopathic tendencies, it was noted that Michael had openly wept when fellow soldiers from his battalion had been killed. So then the jury retired on Thursday, the 16th of June. Lord Hardy reminded the jury that a guilty verdict must be decided if they are certain beyond any reasonable doubt. And they couldn't come to a decision that day. But by lunchtime on Friday, the 17th of June, they had. They found him guilty. Upon hearing this, Michael Ross looked up for the first time since the trial had begun. He leapt over the court furniture and swept the court security aside. Donald Finlay, his defence advocate, cried after him and pled for him to stop. Ross escaped the courtroom and ran towards the fire exit. A court official got him to the ground of the rugby tackle before a policeman caught up and they handcuffed him. In the days after the trial, the police discovered that before the trial, Michael had gone to Glasgow Airport and hired a car. The car was parked roughly two miles away in a Tesco car park. 
Then when they opened the boot, they discovered it was filled with army materials, camouflage gear, combat boots, along with grenades and a very illegal submachine gun. What do you think he was planning? Michael has since commented on saying that he had intended to escape to the Highlands to live off the land as a fugitive. The machine gun, which he had illegally owned since seizing it in Russia, was to be used to take down deer. I don't know about you right now, but to me, that has a wee bit of an order of bullshit. Michael was eventually sentenced to a mandatory life sentence with a punishment tariff of 25 years for the murder and a further five for being an idiot and staging the wee escape attempt and, of course, the cache of weapons. Lord Hardy spoke to Michael and said, It was a vicious, evil and unprovoked murder. Your actions in murdering him were an act of cowardice and, despite what was said about your army career, it is clear from your actions after conviction that you are still a coward. Ooh, burn. And in regard to a police cover-up and the weapon, just uh, give this a little listen. Police investigating the discovery of a handgun in Kirkwall will consider whether it's linked to the murder of a Bangladeshi waiter. The weapon was discovered in the garden of a former police detective, known to have been an acquaintance and colleague of Eddie Ross, the father of Michael Ross, who was convicted of the 1994 killing. From Orkney, Mark Hurst reports. Last month, police recovered what appeared to be a handgun from the garden of this Kirkwall property. The weapon was discovered by the householder while she was gardening and is believed to have been wrapped in plastic. Today it emerged the elderly resident is the widow of a former police detective known to have been an acquaintance of Michael Ross. Ross was convicted in 2008 of the 1994 murder of Indian restaurant waiter Shamsuddin Mahmood who was shot dead as he served diners. It was Orkney's first murder case in 25 years and sent shockwaves through this quiet community. For 12 years the case remained unsolved, but new evidence from an eyewitness who claimed to have seen Ross near the murder scene resulted in his arrest and subsequent conviction. It could be some time before the weapon that was found here is checked by forensic experts. Its discovery has fueled further speculation about this very controversial case, which almost 20 years on continues to divide local opinion. Police sources have said that a number of lines of inquiry would be pursued, including a possible link to the brutal murder. Investigating officers involved in the original inquiry never recovered the weapon used in the shooting, which was a 9mm handgun. The newly discovered weapon is currently being examined by forensic experts at the Police Firearms Laboratory in Glasgow. The Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission is currently considering whether to refer the conviction of Michael Ross back to the Court of Appeal. Mark Hurst, STV News, Kirkwall. And, well, I think I'll go ahead and leave that there. That is where we are today. Michael is still in prison and his dad is still in Kirkwall. Who really knows what happened? What do you think? You can get in touch with your thoughts and opinions, of course, because I'd love to read them. I just find it interesting. It, it, it just shows no matter where you are, overpopulated cities or remote islands, where there's people, there's the benefits of a social community, no doubt, but there, there's also flaws. And sometimes those flaws can be deadly often violent but sometimes deadly and please don't let this put you off visiting Orkney or trusting the police I suppose 
as I said, I'd, I've never been to Orkney, but I would love to go one day. Yeah, one day perhaps. I don't imagine I'll go to the current Indian restaurant in Kirkwall though, because <laughs> I was on the TripAdvisor for it, and it's not got good reviews. Although one did actually mention, you would never know someone got murdered in here. Like, what do they expect? <laughs> Just the chalk outline on the floor. I don't know. Bloodstains in the walls. As always, it's been a pleasure getting to read and put together the information for one of these special episodes. Sorry, it just came to a sort of grinding halt here. I used the book Blood in the Glens by Jean McLennan, as well as the internet to get all the information. Uh, there's so many articles on this. It's fantastic. True crime. There's just something to it, isn't there? So, if you do have any thoughts, get in touch. Also, if you have any future special episode suggestions, please feel free you can suggest them, you know. Email us at thecrackpodcastcontract at gmail.com Once again, that is thecrackpodcastcontact at gmail.com We have a Facebook, The Crack Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Crack, capital P on Podcast, capital C on Crack. And check us out on Instagram. I'll always give a follow back, so it's thecrack.podcast. And then finally, you get a cliche podcast play. If you've enjoyed this, please feel free to help out by sharing. Spread the word. Get it out there. If you can find the time to review, that is most appreciated. All these little things, they, they do greatly help out. And with that, I'll take a big deep breath in, slap my thighs and say, right, then stand up and make to leave. Right. Okay. Remember, take care of yourself. Be careful out there. Don't take any shit and just be good. I'll speak to you next time. Bye for now.